We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run. Always chasing. Never stop. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Chasing Excellence, a special episode, Ben. We are joined today by Lauren Johnson. Lauren, you're a mental performance coach. Uh, the easiest and the fastest way to get to what you do is you work for three or four years with the New York Yankees uh, in the world of mental performance. I love it uh, if you could just, by way of just introduction, kind of how do you talk about what you do? How do you describe it? How do you tell people, uh, how do you describe what it is you do when people ask? So really is I help people improve performance in their lives by making elite choices. So helping them to develop their ability to make the best choices um, by leveraging the power of our minds. And like I said earlier, I studied sport and performance psychology. So I didn't just study about sport. I, I mm. learned how to uh, take these principles and create the parallels between so many different domains. And as you know, you know, I, I say this all the time, mindset isn't everything but it impacts everything. And so it, uh, you'll find it in so many fields, not just in sports, but that's definitely one where you see it a lot. So I, I think we're gonna have a fun conversation. I've got some ideas to, 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 uh, to um, explore with you guys. But before we do, I'm really curious, like, could you talk to us about, I think we have a good sense of like what a coach does, right? however we kind of define that, but I'm really curious, like, what does it look like to be a, a performance coach or a mental performance coach? Like, what is, what does the mechanics of that actually look like? Like, I'm sure it's not just like you call them up, you call up your clients and like, you just motivate them and then they go out and they crush things. Like, what does that process actually look like? Oh man, that's such a great question. I know a lot of people, when I tell them what they do, they're like, oh, you're a motivational speaker. And I'm like, yeah. no, <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, I sure some of what I talk about can be motivating. Um, and we do talk about like the science of motivation. However, what I do is uh, number one, it's getting to know the person, you know, g giving a lot of people say, well, give me a, just give me advice. What's your best advice? I'm like, that's, <laughs> I hate doing that because to me, it's just throwing like a blanket uh, you know, this general piece of information on a situation I know nothing about. And I think a lot of what mental performance is, is very individual. It is very personalized. And so it's really important, number one, to understand who it is you're working with, because what works for you won't work for somebody else. What works for, you know, one pitcher I'm working with won't work for an outfielder. And so it just really matters, number one, to understand the person that you're working with. And then number two, it's then knowing the material and the theory and the science and well enough to be able to work within it. You know, I, I always say theory is great, but not everybody fits into one. Mm -hmm. This is not a scientific experiment with control studies. Like what we're, we're dealing with humans. And if we don't consider that there are other approaches than what the theory says, we're going to miss out on really uh, a lot, a lot of people. And so um, it's, it's knowing the material, it's knowing the person, and then it's being able to deliver it in a way that's impactful. That's probably the most important piece because knowing is not enough. Being able to connect emotionally with who it is you're speaking with starts with a relationship and then, um, and then continues on with kind of that art of what we do through storytelling and through really connecting with what you know will um, be compelling for that individual. Mm -hmm. So and that's, uh, go ahead, ben. yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating to me because 
you work with people in like really high stakes situations and there's like there's careers on the line and they're coming to you for help. And it's not like a normal transactional experience where someone's like, hey, if you switch your grip on the club, hey, if you move your foot out this way, it might you might get more hits. It's I said club. I mixed up like golf. With, right. I was, <laughs> yeah, we'll stick with baseball. On most the bat, players, most baseball players play golf though, so it's all right. They're probably shaking their heads. Like, it's yep. really weird how like every athlete also plays golf, and they're also like awesome at golf. Like, yeah, what's the deal with that? Like, how is everybody like? Like, I play golf and I suck at golf. Like, well, I don't like, know, but I will tell you, it makes me really popular because my husband's a professional golfer. Oh, so there we go. Everyone like first time when I joined the Yankees, I had managers like, hey, give me your give. Me me your husband's phone number and like they just straight up call him and be like you want to play with us this weekend Love so it. it's made me popular <laughs> oh, okay. um okay so my question is you have like it, there's an urgency aspect to what you do it's not like come and sit on the couch and we'll talk about your your marital problems and if it takes four years to iron it out it takes four years to iron it out you're like you got to get someone out of a slump you got to get somebody to stop having the yips, the Chuck Knobloch thing or whatever it is. And you got to do it quickly and in order for it to do it. What you said, which is so crazy is like, it's emotional and it's a human aspect. You're asking people to be so vulnerable. So what's the tricks? Like what's the hacks <laughs> from a leadership standpoint or mm -hmm. like, how do I, how do you get somebody to like bear their soul? It's because you're a doctor that like people are just like, and you're just like, you're, that's the role you play. So they're like, let me just spill my guts or do you have little tricks of how to get people to feel really comfortable and really quickly build the trust? Well, number one, I'll say I'm not a doctor. Uh, okay, yeah. I, yeah. So not, not that just, I have just a play one on degree. TV. Yeah. yeah. I just play one on TV. It's fine. Um, but <laughs> number two, it's really important to be able to listen. Listening is so important when it comes to building trust. And there's different types of listening. A lot of us, we all hear, right? And we all listen. But the difference is how you respond to that. And when it comes to what I do, I have a philosophy that we work with what we got. And so for some guys, like we're not going to, we're not going to change the skill. Like the, the one big thing that between practice and performance, okay, is everybody says, oh, what changes? I want to start out by pointing out what doesn't change your ability. What you didn't practice yesterday, you haven't suddenly changed an ability from that morning to the evening, from yesterday to today. And so what changes is the circumstances around us. What changes is the pressure. What changes is the severity of the situation. Like, like you're saying, the urgency of being, needing to perform when it matters most. And so what comes into play is actually how we manage our thought process and how we manage the decisions that we make in those moments. And so what we know is that with our stress response, everybody responds a little bit differently. We know how our stress response shows up. But for for instance, there's actually a pitcher I worked with at the Yankees who is now with the Red Sox, which I know you guys will be happy Woo! to hear. He's also very, very, very good. He is somebody that- Everyone can connect the dots there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a very, very good pitcher that used to be with the Yankees, now with the Sox. Yes. Uh, he works really fast on the mound. Typically in a stress response situation, you want to slow things down. You want to get more in control. If you told that player to do that, he would become worse. 
And so that's why it's also important to really pay attention, even if it's just observing. Even if you don't get one-on-one time with him, it's being able to observe, being able to make people feel comfortable, be non-judgmental, but work with what they have. And it should be simple. If somebody, if you go up to somebody in mental performance and you are in a big time situation and they sit down and they start telling you, you need to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, run. That is not the best way to really, you know, disseminate what we do in a really high performance situation. It's being able to take really simple cues that are, people can apply immediately. And again, with knowing who you're working with, that becomes a lot easier to do. Ben, random question for you, because this actually is, this is interesting to me. You work because of who you work with and how you work with them with uh, high level CrossFit athletes. You play both of these roles often all at the same time. <laughs> Do you ever separate just in your own mind? Like I'm mental performance coach right now, and I'll worry about the, 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 the mechanics of making this athlete better on at another time and another moment, another opportunity, or is it, are you not conscious of shifting between both of these roles? No, it's not a shifting. It's, uh, it, um, cause it, it, it is like any coach doesn't play just a singular role. Like right. any coach in any world doesn't play a singular role. That'd be like you saying like you as a parent, are you now the educator and now you're the disciplinarian? You know that there's going to be carryover from one to the other and you have to work well to make sure you're blending and balancing everything at the same time. I think that the best coach, my take, and this is why we have people like Lauren on the show, is because I believe that most of coaching happens the way Lauren's talking about it, which is this mm. transformational mindset isn't everything, but it affects everything. You know, It's the base of the pyramid. It starts with character. It starts with mindset. It starts with discipline. It starts with the right character traits. And then from there, if you once you have that, then you can build. But if you don't have the curiosity, the coachability, the growth mindset, if you don't have the patience, the fortitude, if you don't have the tenacity, if you don't have the competitiveness, like, and you have all the skill in the world, it'll take you up to a certain point. And then when you meet somebody that has your talent, but all those other things, you're going to be left scrambling. So that's why at a really young age, you try to build those things as much as you can. And it's also why if you're inheriting an athlete and they might not have these things, it's why I don't do this by myself either. We have sports performance mental coach that we work with as well. So I have help with this. But as you know, Pat, people listen to this podcast. It's something that I I, I place an immense amount of value on in terms of their performance. Um, but it's not like, let me take off my coach hat and put on my mental performance Exactly. Hat. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. No. Okay. And, and just to like add on to that, cause I could not agree more is that I also think part of the coaching, like in the moment also has less to do with us giving answers and us directing them in the right direction. Cause a lot of these athletes we're working with that are really high performers. A lot of them have been trained in these areas. And so it becomes asking the right questions to then lead them to those different skills and those tools that they know how to do. And so it's also really empowering for a lot of those athletes to be like, Hey, you know, I'm really struggling under pressure. You know, what should I do? And I ask, well, what do you think you should do? And I'm like, well, I should just really focus on, you know, one thing that's, I do really well when I'm just focusing on that one action item that is outside of myself and it's ex an external focused item. And I'm like, great, go do it. <laughs> and so a lot of times it isn't even giving answers. It's just directing them. Got it. Cool. Love that. Okay. So my idea for this conversation, 
uh, or at least for the beginnings of it. Sometimes I say this and then it, we never return to it, which is totally fine. But um, I've got some kind of dichotomies that I've heard that certainly Ben and I have talked about that I've heard you talk about in various uh, conversations, various podcasts. Um, and so what I want to do is I just want to kind of present you these kind of these ideas, these dichotomies, and just see where it goes. And I've got a handful of them. If we get through all of them, awesome. If we get through one, awesome too. Um, and the first one I want to, uh, throw out to both of you is something, um, Lauren, that you actually put a, you had a post on this on Instagram, which is where I got it, which is challenge versus threats. Can you unpack that for us? Oh man, absolutely. I love, I love this dichotomy. Um, there was actually a study where they had people jumping out of airplanes and they hooked them up to a bunch of different, you know, things to read, you know, their physiological responses. And they coached, they had a control group and then they had other two groups that they coached. And on, on one group, they said, okay, you know, I, we want you to view this as like a threat. Like they were scared and they had them lean into that feeling of like being terrified to jump out of an airplane. And then there was another group that they had and they said, you know what, for you guys, we want you to look at this as a challenge. Like you're taking on this challenge. And then somebody, the other, there, there was a control group where they didn't have them do anything. And what they realized is that their bodies reacted differently based on their perception. And so the biggest difference is that they all did the exact same thing. They just interpreted it a little bit different. And what happens when we do that is when we look at something as a threat, our brain, like it goes into protection mode. And so it sends a signal through your body. It releases a stress hormone. Your, uh, your lungs actually constrict your blood vessels. They dilate and it just keeps all of your blood in your major organs. It's like that fight or flight. And then when you look at something as a challenge, actually the opposite happens. Your heart rate variability goes up. Your blood vessels, they all dilate. So you're getting a lot more uh, oxygenated blood to the rest of your body and to your brain, meaning you can make better and clearer decisions and you're getting more oxygen into your lungs. Mm. And so by simply viewing something as a challenge instead of a threat, which is often a default setting, then you can begin to act by design, not by default. And you can really work within the, what we, the way that we know our brain responds to these situations to put yourself in a better position to perform at a, at a high level. Lauren, what was, do you know what the, either through the study or your own, through your own practice, how does, how does someone switch that? Because jumping in an airplane is a threat. It is scary. Mm -hmm. So how does it go from like, is it just literally a coach going like, Hey, this is just a challenge. Let's see how you can walk through this challenge. Or is it more than that? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, it seems simple, right. To just say like, Oh, this is a challenge. You know, sometimes we can't buy into that. Mm -hmm. And it's not to ignore the fact that what you're dealing with is not high stakes or ignore the fact that there isn't a really large consequence if something goes wrong. And, you know, oftentimes I'm not working with people that are jumping out of planes, but I am working with people that, uh, in certain domains that are life or death or that are seemingly life or death, meaning, you know, I, this either means I have a job at the end of the day or I don't. And so really what this looks like is it's being able to flip that switch by training them to view the, their opportunity, an opportunity in the struggle. The fact that I, I trained for this, I trained for this moment. Like for instance, when we're, if somebody's in the world series, that is a huge, huge deal to be there. And it's a really big deal, whether or not you perform. And so one of the ways that we look at this is even by simply telling yourself, this is a challenge. 
and looking at it slightly differently, yes, you can make those changes in your brain chemically and in your body. And But I would say that if you just one day wake up and decide to do it, that's not always the best approach because we can't always rely on that. And so the way that we train it is we put our people in high stress situations and practice and we have them train this response, gain control, and then perform so that when that actual moment happens, they have that tool to pull. What, what are, what's the mechanics of that? When you say you train people, when you train mm. people to, um, to, to overcome this stress response, what is that? Is it breath work? Is it um, creating space? Like how do, how do you, what's, what's the mechanism there? So there's, there's both. And so that's a great question. And so for instance, like uh, with our pitchers, you know, what we've done before is we have them, we have them run sprints, then get on the mound with their, and what they're doing is we are, we are uh, creating that physiological response because a lot of times we can't match the pressure that you feel in, you know, in a game situation. And so what we do is we create that physiological response to match what your body does under stress. And then what we do is uh, one way that we do this is create a routine around it. And so when that happens is number one, creating that space. So stepping off the mound, giving yourself that space. Um, it's kind of like the eye of the hurricane. You're dealing with chaos. You step into the eye, you give yourself a second so that you know what you're going to do when you step back on that mound. And then, like you said, one way that we can really control ourselves is by starting uh, to control your breathing. And so there's, you know, there's different ways that we do that with different players, but a really great way is, you know, four count in, hold for two count and a four count out. The most important piece is the hold because it's not natural. And so you are exercising control over your breathing and it's really slowing everything down. What else would, what else would you suggest people play with? Cause I think that people on this podcast have heard the, the, that listen to this have heard the breath stuff. Are there other tools that you go with? To, Cause I love the idea of stepping into the eye, but it, yes. without, without the, the tools to pick from out of the toolbox that might spin even worse. Cause it gives them an, even more of a chance to like, look around and go, Oh my God, look how dangerous and look at all the threats around me. Once I step back out of the eye, Oh my God. So, um, or is it breath work is, is you're like, no breath work, everybody, it's this bi-directional thing. If you do breath work, you're it's, we know science, it brings the central nervous system back to the parasympathetic. And this is the tool and everyone should try this. I mean, I think breath work is a great thing to try. However, it's not everything. And not every pitcher loves to do breath work. And to your point, not every, not every athlete, no matter what, what area they're in, loves to take a ton of time. Mm -hmm. And so it's important, number one, to also know how much time is enough time because sometimes it can, it can spin into overthinking. And so make sure it, it needs to be purposeful. You need whatever you do, it has to have a purpose behind it. And so another way that we, that I've done this with not only baseball players, but with golfers and, and hitters too, is just a stress release. And so essentially, like if they have the ball in their hand is squeezing it as hard as they can for about 10 seconds, what you're doing is you're stopping the blood flow of that area. And then it's that tension release. Then when you release it, you're getting that flow of, uh, of oxygenated blood into that area and it really slows things down. And so that's one way to do it. Um, another way to do it is to kind of create some sort of mantra or some external focus. A lot of times we go, okay, go internal mm -hmm. in a big situation. The best way to focus is to have an external focus, something outside of you. Cause what we don't want to do is to create that overthinking moment where we're not actually able to access our subconscious. We're becoming too consciously involved. And then we're cutting off that subconscious, um, connection to the brain 
which then stops us from being in flow. What would be external? What would be an external focus? External focus would be like your spot where you want to, where you want to throw the ball. What is, what is that spot? Uh, picking, picking a focal point to focus on and really just focusing on that area, giving yourself like, I don't know, maybe it's 30 seconds, 10 seconds, and then giving yourself one quick cue that gets you back in the moment for, for a lot of, uh, pitchers, they do next pitch, next pitch. And then for golfers, one of the things I've done for them is that we create boundaries, uh, between things. And so I, I let my guys, if they hit a bad shot, I let them hold onto the club. And the second that they put that club back in the bag, that is over. So create, we also can create a boundary between one situation to the next. And that also creates some level of distance and spacing between what just happened and what I can do about it now. Cool. Bring us to like the corporate, how do we do that in the boardroom? Cause I love that. Oof. Like that's like, and I can almost draw parallels better to that, to parenting than I can't, but like in the boardroom, like you start, you, you, someone's doing something that's triggering you in the boardroom. You can't step away. You can't like take time. Like, how do you do it? Oh man, there's a lot of different ways. So the way I love to do this is I like to create a physical boundary. And so like Aaron judge, he picks up, he picks up the dirt, throws it in between it at bats. Um, you know, some of the outfielders, they'll wipe their hands on the ground and that's a symbol that that plays over. And this one's the next one they're focused on in the boardroom. I mean, talk about, I've had, I've had CEOs take, take uh, sticky notes, rip them off, throw them in the trash mm. or put them next to them. And that to them means like, okay, that's over. Mm. Like I need to get back in it. And they, then they'll write the focus word or the thing they want to be focused on, on the next sticky note. Mm. And that kind of symbolizes, okay, that's over let's get back to what I need to be focused on. Um, and a really great question to really direct your focus, especially when you're in a boardroom situation is the question, what's important now? I'm sure you've heard this before, but if you can answer that question in the moment, you are back in the present. And a lot of times in the boardroom, what we do is we get really caught up in either tripping over the past or predicting the future. And so that really does get you back in line with the moment you're currently in. A lot of talk for being in the boardroom. I don't think the the three of us have been in a boardroom in a long time. I just want to throw that well, out. Well, the, the, the proverbial boardroom, right? <laughs> I know. Like I understand. The, yeah. I understand. That's like, I understand, but yeah. boardrooms are for old people. And, and another thing is if you can, and, and not everybody can, you know, you may be in a big meeting where you can't step away, but I have people that will excuse themselves and go wash their hands. And like that washing their hands like symbolizes, okay. I'm going to walk in there either showing up differently. I'm going to take care of this or it prepares them for a difficult conversation they're about. To it have. totally makes sense because Pat and I are both parents of young kids and man, does that like just like ring home so true. If you stay, it's just this like cyclical thing where you're like, no matter a lot of times, no matter how much you try and talk yourself out of it, no matter how much you like what's important now, like let's operate off of principles. Like you have the right self-talk. I love my kid. Like the frustration levels can kind of like overwhelm. But if you, if you allow oh, yeah. yourself that true, that space to turn the page, sometimes you're stepping out of the room, you can come back in with a new fresh set of eyes and it's a very different experience. Absolutely. And, and there's a, and you know, another way to do something like this. I mean, I am sure you've heard the famous Dan Siegel line is name it to tame it. When we name like how we are feeling in the moment, what we're doing is we are creating space from it. Instead of identifying with that feeling, like, if you're saying, I am frustrated, we're identifying with that. If we say, I am feeling frustrated, what it does is it kind of creates this 360 view. 
this third person view of the situation we're in. And what it actually does is it sends soothing neurotransmitters to those emotional centers of our brain so that we can make a little bit clearer decisions. And so that's another thing that you can do that can really help you to see the picture without identifying. Okay, this is where Pat said, this is where we hijacked Pat's whole plan. And now we're- Nope, this is, we're rolling. <laughs> Happens we almost every it. time. Yep. Okay, so perfect though. Like now we're into like this self-talk thing, right? And there's so many different things yes. about self-talk and you just named one of them, which is like, you don't identify it. We don't say, I am frustrated. I feel, and all of a sudden it's like, um, can you talk a little bit more about self-talk and the way you talk to your athletes about self-talk? Oh yeah. Um, self, the most powerful conversation we have, or the way that we, is the conversation with ourselves. And because the way that you describe your situation or the, the way you describe you to you really impacts how you show up. What do you mean by that? The way you describe ways. you to you, what does that mean? So the way that you view yourself the way that you describe, like, I suck. I'm stupid. I'm a fucking idiot. Like those kinds of things. The way you describe yourself to you is so important because like we're listening, whether we know it or not, those things that you constantly say to yourself, what happens is soon you start to believe them. And so if they're not productive, if they're not helpful, like I had a client or I have a client I'm working with and he's, he's incredible and he's a businessman, but he, he makes fun of himself quite often. And I know that a lot of times, you know, we use that as a defense mechanism and I, he would self-deprecate like on, uh, on social media. And I told him, I was like, no more of that because subconsciously what you're telling yourself is that you're not enough. And that is your defense mechanism. And so the way that you speak to yourself, the way you describe you to you matters. And so one of the things that I do for a lot of my clients is I have them take out a sheet of paper and write down, I am. And then I want them to write down 20 things that they believe that they are. And I know it sounds like a lot. It's probably my, like all my clients' least favorite exercise I do with them because <laughs> they, a lot of them don't, don't speak to themselves very well. And if I told, if I told them, write down 20 things you need to improve, that list comes out like that. Why? Because we've exercised it so damn much that it's easy for us. So what we want to do is we want to make the unfamiliar, meaning reminding yourself that like, I am this, I am good at that, or Hey, I, I can do that. We want to be, make that familiar. That's the only reason why it's hard for people to create that list. And so number one is to do that. And then to also create a list of things that you want to become, because I think that's also another thing that, you know, if you want to be something, number one, it's first of all, identifying who it is you want to become. And the way that that becomes a belief is through action is supporting that belief or supporting that new identity or who you want to become with a new action. And as you do that, that actually begins to form your identity. And so there's a lot of ways that we do that, but that's one of the ways that we, you know, I think it's really important to, de to, uh, define how you describe you to yourself. How, where does it, where do you draw the line between, um, because we should have a level of self-awareness, particularly as athletes. We need oh, to yeah. know where our weak points are. We need to know where our opportunities are for improvement. Um, that with like the beating myself up and drilling in a, um, a an image of myself that might not be true. Where do you, how do we, how do we play through that Patrick words through that dichotomy? Oh, it's, that's a huge dichotomy because any strengths, taken to an extreme can become a weakness. So to your point, if we're constantly just saying like, I am great, I am phenomenal. I can do this. I can do that. Uh, number one, it's not very realistic. Number two, 
um, that can become a weakness as well because complacency is actually the battle between success and effort. And if we are having a lot of success or we're telling ourselves how we're so great, if that can lead to complacency and missing out on some of these details. And so I think that there is a balance. I don't think the balance is 50-50, but I do think that it's there's two tools we need to have. We need to learn to be our biggest critic, meaning we're self-aware, we're not afraid to say we need to improve, but then we also need to be our biggest fan. And so we need to know when to deploy both, uh, you know, both examples. And I know that there's times where I being hard on myself is actually way more beneficial for me than it is to tell myself how great I am. And I know there's a lot of players out there that I work with that. And when they're in a difficult situation, they're not motivated by saying like, Hey, you're, you're phenomenal. It's going like, you're fucking better than that. And they're like, yeah. Oh yeah. Good point. Let's go. You know? So I think it's important to know not only which one that you need, but when to deploy. Is there, cause I've heard you use both of these things now where you're like, I suck, I suck. And then you said you, you is, are you, are you particular with pronouns? What they use? I or you, is it me speaking or is it that other voice in your head that speaks to, are you, is that something you go into? I think it just depends on the person. Yes. Because I think that sometimes when, when I have people that have a, have a really difficult time with just identifying with the situation they're in third person is really great because again, it gives you that third person perspective. You're not as close to the situation. It gives you some space. Um, but I think that you can use both. Um, I know I like to speak directly to myself, not Lauren is, but I have players where it actually is better when they speak a little bit more in the third person to them because they feel like they can say more and they feel like they can act almost as their mentor versus like just speaking to as themselves. As long as it does come out, like they start talking in like press conferences in the third person. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that would be weird. Yeah. Uh, I sincerely hope that doesn't happen. Um, okay. So uh, Pat, I, I'll let you get back to your like outline, but I want to touch on another thing that Lauren talked about, which is um, it's about like this, who you want to become. And then there's this gap, like um, how do you rectify that? That's like, goals in general, right? Like you want to be someone yeah. that you're not right now. That's what the goal is. Like there's this place I want to get to. I'm not there right now. And then there's this gap and the gap, unless I am perfect, I'm not going to get there. And it forces people into this either frustration or focusing on things outside their control or um, so many, the, the dichotomy, the double-edged sword of goals. So where do you fall on goals? Because most athletes are very goal-oriented. Huge. Oh, I, I mean, an athlete without a goal is lost. <laughs> I'll tell you that. And we ran into that with COVID for sure. Um, and so, uh, yeah, goals are huge. They're really important. And to your point earlier about kind of the beliefs, the identity, and um, how those all connect with the actions, that's one of the ways I like to start. Because the way that I look at it is um, beliefs plus actions equals our identity. And so I actually had a player I was working with and he was, I, I knew all the players very, very well. Like if somebody new walked into the Yankees, I would know exactly who they were. And I went to uh, visit one of our, uh, one of our affiliates. And this one player in particular was really short with me. And I was trying to have conversations with him and it was just like really short, really quick. And you can just tell he didn't want to talk to me. And so to me, I look at that as I haven't created enough of a relationship. And so I was trying to spend a little bit more time and it's like, no matter what I did, it was very short. And so 
I kind of got to think, I'm like, man, I hope I didn't say anything to offend him. Like, you know, in the past and I haven't, I didn't know it. So I went into the, uh, to the cages and he was hitting by himself. And I asked him, I said, Hey, do you mind if I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, have I ever said anything to offend you? Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're a little short with me. So I just want to make sure like, you know, I, I haven't missed something. And he goes, Oh no, that's not it. And he says, I'm not very, I'm not a good speaker. And I was like, what do you mean? You're not a good speaker. And he's like, I I just don't think I'm good at speaking. So I try to avoid it at all costs. And so I, we, he came into my office a little bit later on a couple of days later, and we, we really broke this down. And I said, when did you first hear that? Who was the first person that ever told you that? And it took him a while, but then he goes, my first grade teacher, actually, I was learning to read and I really struggled. And she told me I wasn't good at speaking. And since then I've avoided it. And so his belief was, I am not a good speaker. And every time he acted in a way that supported that belief, that strengthened it and then became his identity. I am not a good speaker. And I think a lot of times that's how our goals are, is that who we are right now is something that we want to improve. There's something about it we want to improve. And so for him, I said, okay, how do you want to improve this? Or is this something you want to change? And he goes, he's like, yeah, I do. I said, okay, who do you want to become? So then we took the identity and we just changed the formula. And so we took his identity of, I want to be somebody who raises their hand in a group setting and isn't afraid to speak. And so what we did was we set him up that way. And so every time I would have a group session, I would actually prep him ahead of time. Nobody else knew, but I would prep him ahead of time. And then I would call on him and he would raise his hand. And suddenly that action of raising your hand and putting himself out there actually created this new identity that I am a good speaker and I can raise my hand and I can speak well in front of people. And so when it comes to goals, that's no different. I think one of the things we can ask ourselves is who do we want to become? And then what actions when they're consistently done will help to support that new identity. And that then strengthens your belief. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in and, and just throw another one of these dichotomies out that I think is actually a good segue. It's another one I got, um, from, from, uh, watching some of your stuff, Lauren, which is feelings versus facts. This is a good one. Um, I think there's a lot of people that think at least, and I, I should say I'm one of them. I, at the very beginning, you know, when I was younger, I thought you had to feel good to play good. Mm. You had to feel ready to be ready. You had to feel confident to act confident. And it's just not true. You don't have to feel confident to act confident. You don't have to like feel ready to be ready. And I think when I learned this, I learned that there's this idea that your feelings aren't a prerequisite to your actions. Your feelings are not a prerequisite to the facts of the situation. That the fact is that you can still perform well, even if you don't feel well. And so this is something that, you know, we try and help people to disseminate the two, that feelings are great. And when you have them, when you have them on the right side, uh, you know, of the fence, it can really be a benefit, but feelings aren't always going to be there. And so we don't just want to rely on those when it comes to performance. How about, um, problems versus choices? Mm, This is a good one too. Um, And I I actually have a question, Ben, for you with this one, because I think that this shows up in so many areas because 
if your problem is solvable, you don't have a problem, you have a choice. And I know with high performers that sometimes that can get in the way of their ability to make the right choice because they feel like they don't have one. Do you see that happen a lot um, when you're working with CrossFit athletes? Um, give that to me again. So if, if someone has a problem, give me an example. So what's the problem? Well, let's say the problem is they're not able to, you know, lift the weight that they want to lift. Mm-hmm. They're, they're lifting to failure. They're struggling. They're really frustrated. And a lot of times that can cloud their judgment in terms of what to do next. And so they, they don't really have a, they don't know how to solve it or even though it is solvable and they're maybe are lacking their ability to be resourceful in terms of finding the answer. Do you ever see people get held back in the situation, the circumstance that they're currently in and almost where they can't see five feet in front of them and you're having to pull them out to see the bigger picture? Yeah. I think that that's a, um, you know, kind of like a feelings over principles type thing where people get caught up in the moment and the emotion overrides a lot of the things that they wouldn't do if they were to be looking at this from a 10,000 foot view. Mm -hmm. So to your point, if somebody, you know, um, the story that we've told a bunch of times that is that when Katrin first, Katrin who won the CrossFit games a couple of times, first came to train at um, my gym, her very first training session, she's doing a weightlifting session and doing exactly what you said. She's missing lifts that she would normally hit. So she's trying to lift the weight, it's falling to the ground. She gets incredibly frustrated. She throws her weight belt across the room, slams against the wall. She storms out in a fit of rage and slams the door behind her. Like that's all well and good because it lets off steam and feels good in the moment, but you're actually not moving the needle forward at all. And you're actually taking steps back because you're building in a reactionary pattern that if this happens later on in a competition, this is your default mode of this is what you're going to end up doing. So the, I, in that moment, I walked out behind her, um, simply let her have her little moments. It was, you know, whether it was 10 or 30 seconds and then just said, well, that's not how we act here. Mm-hmm. And then walked back inside and she came back in much more diffused and recognized that, you know, in that moment that that wasn't productive and that's not how we act. And to me, it's this, um, it's, it's a separation between react versus respond. Mm-hmm. And when you react to, to problems, it's impulsive. It's in the moment. It usually feels really good in the moment because you're letting off steam, but it's completely unproductive. Uh, you're left with regret and it's the way amateurs re- react to things as opposed to be able to respond. And you think about those two words, right? There's react, which is, has a negative connotation. It's overreacting like a child would mm-hmm. as opposed to um, respond, which is words that you've used that word a number of times already in this conversation. And when you respond, the word there, that is it's responsible, which is the ability to respond. When you respond, it's calculated. It's based off principles, not feelings. It's a way that professionals act. You're left with pride, not regret. And it's productive, not unproductive. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's a matter of in the moment, taking that, what you've already said, that moment, the, create, create the space just to um, make sure that you're not relying on this, you know, this is a problem. What is wrong with this? What is wrong with me? I'm a victim. I have no control over this situation. Why is this happening to me? Woe, woe is me. And just take a step back and go, what is the elite choice mm-hmm. I should be making in terms of, is there a more 
um, responsible way to approach the situation. And that's why whenever you're faced with a problem, to me, um, don't react, respond. Oh. And that's just – that's if I can instill that principle into um, my athletes and then that's the thing that they can then take into any – because I'm not going to be able to control for every environment. You know, like no. in, in football, Bill Belichick does a great job of doing situational football. Okay. It's third and nine on the 22 with a minute left. What do you do? And he works on situations because there actually is probably a finite number of situations. It take forever to get through them, but there's probably a, in our world, it's infinite because mm -hmm. we don't even know what the sport is going to be we're competing in when we get there. So there's literally an infinite number of possibilities. So I can't do situational. I have to rely on big macro principles and then give the athlete the responsibility to be able to decipher how to work through those situations individually in real time. Yeah. And I mean, that's what, that's what mental performance really is. It's, it's accepting your reality and, and you don't have to like it. But accepting the fact that this is my reality and then choosing your response to it. So I love actually I wanna I I heard you say that somewhere else. That's such a great definition of mental toughness. Can you just say that again? Because I really like this definition. Yeah, no, mental toughness is accepting your reality and choosing your response. Because I mean I think that so many people, I, I'm just yeah. hi, I'm gonna highlight so many people have a hard time with that first part. They're they're they have a because if they're an optimist, it's like, you don't even accept reality. COVID, COVID hits. And like, it's okay. This will be over in two weeks. That's not reality. And then when two weeks come and go, they're crushed. Yes. And yet it's this acceptance of reality. This is such a massive overlooked aspect of mental toughness. It's, it's huge. And you know what? It is such a superpower to be able to look at your situation and accept it. You know, again, it's not accepting defeat. I think some people, that's why they don't like the word acceptance. They're like, oh, I'm accepting defeat. No, you're accepting the fact that you are in the situation that you're in. So instead of pretending you're somebody somewhere else, or you're existing in the past, or you're existing in what you want your future to be, then you're not able to perform right now. And so what we can do is when we accept that reality, we empower ourselves to do something about it. And like you said, respond to it. And I think that it is something that is, can be trained. And I, for instance, I've had athletes where, you know, for instance, I had this pitcher who, if he struggled in one inning, it took him like five to get back. Mm -hmm. And I would tell him, I'm like, okay, this is what, this is how we're going to get you to accept reality quick. I said, we're going to start by, if, if right now it takes five innings, I want it to take four next time. And then next time I wanted to take three. And the next time I wanted to take two. And what we did is we trained himself to respond uh, quickly and in a quicker manner. But in the reality of the fact that he can't do it for five, he's not going to be able to do it immediately. And so what we're, we're going to do is we're going to create some, some goals that are incremental that get him to the place where suddenly he's responding after that bad pitch. And he's able to take back control of his situation instead of exists so long in his mistake that it, it takes over and totally... Uh, hijacks the next five. Yeah. You, they get overwhelmed completely. It's like, yeah, so he, so good. Um, you know, September 11th was, you know, a, a short while ago and I was watching some of these tribute things and there was a highlight about the, the firefighters mm -hmm. and talk about this, talk about accepting reality and being responsible. 
like the stories of the heroism of that day of what those guys did is so incredible. Now, if they can do that, faced with that sort of adversity and those types of stakes, most of us can probably do it if they're t- if our toddler is crying at 3.30 in the morning. Yes. Because that's what people do is they go like, they go out of this accepting reality thing and they storytell mm. and they go into this like, woe is me. Why is this happening to me? My baby always cries. Like I bet the other babies don't cry as much as this baby does. And I didn't get any sleep for the last three nights. And like, and the story, because it, it's this feel good of like, I'm a victim. This feels good. And it's the... It's the ego play in the opposite way of like what most people think of ego is like, I'm the best, I'm going to win. The ego can take all these different forms and shapes mm-hmm. as long as it gets to identify with something. That's what the ego wants to do is identify with something. As long as you can identify with like, I'm the victim here, that leads to overwhelmed, unproductive, which is why I love your definition so much of like the first thing we have to do, the very first thing is accept reality. Mm-hmm. Like- I'm Tom Brady and it's I'm in the Super Bowl and I'm down 28 to 3 halfway through the third quarter against the Falcons. Like that's reality. Now, what's the next best thing I can do to be the as productive as possible and make the best elite choice possible? It's talk to Julian Edelman next to me on the bench about what we're going to do when we go back in. It's not sit there pout, not sit there and project how terrible it's going to feel to get, you know, stomped in the Super Bowl. It is what is the next elite choice that I should do right now to move the needle forward. That's why I just, I, this, this, the, um, I've worked a long time to try to define mental toughness and yours is the best I've, so what I'm saying is I'm stealing it. Please, you go for it. Uh, you I'll, credit, I'll credit you for the first Let's two just times. cut to the choice. Yeah. And then after cr- that? After oh. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. After that, it's like, did you hear what Ben said? Yeah. I love it. Hey, you know, that's the greatest compliment ever. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> then I'll start to crediting you, I'll start to credit you. <laughs> no, I, I, I just can't. I, I agree so much on so many things because um, I, I believe you become elite by choice not by chance. Like nobody's coming to save you. And the moment that you realize that is the moment that you give yourself the power to make a better choice. And that's, that's the difference. That's the, that's the biggest difference between high performers and average performers is they make elite level choices. And oftentimes they're difficult. You have to be responsible. You have to take ownership and you have to not feel sorry for yourself. And the best, most elite people I work with, they don't sit and feel sorry for themselves. They don't, they go, well, the situation sucks, but what am I going to do about it? And they're not afraid to look at it in the face and go, this is my reality. What am I going to choose? And I think that the more that we train ourselves to do that, not only do you not sit in misery for longer than you have to, but number two, you also empower yourself to be back in the driver's seat and not sit in the back seat along for the ride. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of people that, you know, we talk about this, like the circle of control versus circle of concern, focus on things you can influence. And if you can't influence it, like ignore it, but people are too fast to like put it outside the circle. And this is that like weird thing between like um, acceptance, let it go, let it be, you know, be, um, not like get rattled by things like, but at, at, but also what's, so an example, um, your flight gets canceled. You're at the airport, you're trying to get home, your flight gets canceled. So you go outside my control, like, oh, well, woe is me, like, but I'm not going to, I'm going to do the right thing and not get rattled by this because it's outside my control. But that doesn't mean play 
passive. It doesn't mean just like give up everything. What it means is be as intentional as you can possibly be towards moving you closer to your objective. Now, if your objective is truly to like um, keep your heart rate low, <laughs> if it's truly to just like be Zen monk mode, then yes, go in in the what's it called? Not the lobby. What's it called? The terminal. The terminal. And, yeah. And go and meditate. Like cool, and just wait for the next flight, whatever it is, and just go total monk mode. But if it if your goal is to get home to be able to see your kids that night, like do everything you can again without getting rattled, but do everything you can. Make the phone calls, go up and talk to the desk, find somebody at a different desk that's not as overwhelmed. Like make sure you're being as intentional and productive as you can, because it is inside. Some of those things are inside your control. We don't just need to throw up our hands and go, well, outside my control. Oh, this is what happens, and we're not just getting bounced around through life, you have a lot of say into what happens. Oh, entirely. I mean, what you're talking about there is just this idea of the fact that we always have a choice, but sometimes we forget. Mm. Like, we always have a choice. We always have a choice on like with the things that we can control. We always have a choice in how we view something. We always have a choice with how we respond to something. And sometimes that can be forgotten. I mean, one of the greatest uh, stories that regarding this is, this gentleman that got that went into prison and what he ended up doing is every single day he chose to view his time in prison in a certain way. And what he did is he visualized every day shooting, uh, like shooting par on this incredible course. Yeah. And he came out and he did it after not playing for several years. And so we always have a choice, but it can be forgotten sometimes. And so to your point, when you're in a situation where your reality may not be great, circumstances suck, but you know that you can't like, you know, that's out of my control, decide what part of your reality do you, now, now that you've accepted it is in your control that you do have some power over and being, like you said, I love the word you use is being intentional, act by design, not by default, act on purpose, not on autopilot. Love it. Yeah, the stories of like um, um, prisoners is like is the most amazing because you go like, yeah. like even even in prison where you are inside of a cell, you still have control over a lot. Like the Stockdale stories and yes. um, Nelson Mandela and like all of these um, people that while I mean Malcolm X, like while in prison, uh, they were they were preparing. Like it's yes. it's it's you don't lose like you never lose control over choices. Never, never. It's interesting, actually, the, the idea of preparing, because does, that ties to me closely with the idea of um, what we first started talking about versus challenge versus threats, because inherent in a challenge is that it's preparing me for something, mm. right? It, it's, it, the challenge isn't the point. The point is me getting through the challenge so that I can get on the other side of it so that I can address the next challenge, right? Um, Absolutely. Which is an interesting connection to the beginning of this conversation. I want to wrap up. Uh, this, this, this idea, this elite by choice, um, it's not a random phrase. It is actually like, that's very much what you do. It's what your, your moniker is your tagline. Hashtag TM. Hashtag. <laughs> um, I'm really curious because of the people you work with often, right? Whether it's CEOs, whether it's high level athletes, they already probably walk around the world thinking that they are elite at the thing that they do. Maybe not, you know, mm -hmm. certainly not perfect, not without their faults, not without their flaws, but there's an identity there that I'm elite. Like certainly if you're on the Yankees, like you recognize, you understand that you're an elite baseball player, you're an elite athlete. 
How does somebody who doesn't consider themselves elite at anything begin to recognize that they can become elite, or at least they can become uh, a, a degree closer to eliteness through their choice? That to me feels like a big gap for, for a lot of folks to, to make. How would, you, how would you start helping somebody who doesn't see themselves as that um, uh, in such a way that it's actually helpful to them? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I've, I think that the principles that we talked about today and that, uh, you know, I talk about a lot with the clients that I do, you're right. A lot of people I work with are already very elite at what they do, but these principles don't change when it comes to how do you become an elite friend? How do you become an elite uh, spouse? How do you become an elite business partner? How do you become an elite mother? How, how do you become an elite, you know, nurse, like you fill in the blank these principles respond to each or uh, work for every single person in so many different ways. And I think the important part is defining how you define elite. Hmm. Everybody's going to define that a little bit different. And so elite for one person is going to be a little bit different for somebody else. And I think that that comes also comes down to your definition of success. And for, you know, my CEO client, his definition of success is having, you know, $5 billion in assets in five years. And then somebody else's definition of success is making the varsity baseball team. And so it just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what level you are. The fact is to become an elite version of you, it comes down to the choices that you make. And so we're defining, we're defining elite by choice by, by what are those elite choices? Because there are average choices and there are elite choices. Mm. It's average to say, I want to be healthy and then go to McDonald's. It's not very average. You know, if you want to become an NFL player, the difference between a bag of chips and a, and an apple, like there is no choice. The choice is the elite choice is the apple. And so it becomes, what are those choices that maybe in your life are currently average that, you know, if you made them, it would take you to a different level, whether your definition of elite is one thing or something else. Where can uh, our listeners find out more about you, learn more about what you do, learn more from you? What's the best place? Where would you like people to, to point their attention? Best place would be to go to my website because I have a million different social media handles because I have a very common name. Um, and my, my website is laurenjohnsonandco.com, the A-N-D, all spelled out. Um, laurenjohnsonandco.com. There you can find all, you can find my newsletter, you can find um, information for my event. You can find all my social media handles. I love your website. I have to put, uh, people should go there. I love, I don't even know what, what, what like it's categorized as, but there's a, a video of you with your, just your like mess ups and outtakes. Yeah. Yep. It's so refreshing. It's so, Thank you. it's so humanizing and it's so vulnerable today, yeah. and it's so real and it's so relatable. Oh my gosh. It's so, well, it's such a good, you. it's a, such a good move. Well, I have I'm to say, steal that um, from you too, Lauren. <laughs> you know, I have, you can take it I have so you know, many of them. We should just rename my website, <laughs> benandco.com. <laughs> no, it's honestly, I, I'm going to be honest with you. That's every day. Every yeah, day for sure. is not, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. So I, when I put that together, I laughed my ass off. I was like, <laughs> you look like an idiot in the best way. Uh, because there's many people that can relate to this. So thank you. I had, I it, I had it like, I, I had like two dozen of those today. So, yeah, yeah, it happens all the time. Um, before we wrap up, tell folks about the Elite by Choice Live because I know it's coming up soon and some folks out there might be interested in learning more. Uh, give us the quick uh, download on what that is. Yeah, so this Elite by Choice Live is going to be for people in the field of 
mental performance, sports psychology, performance psychology, people that are new, people that are interested are coming, and then also people that are current in the field. And so what we're really going to do is we're going to bridge the gap between the science of what we do and the art of what we do. Uh, most people that are coming, they know the art, they know the theory, they know all that. We are peeling back the layers and we're going beyond theory, things you can't find in textbooks. And I'm bringing some incredible people in our field, haven't quite announced that yet, that will be announced in the next week or so. Um, and, and then also people outside of our field, because what we, what I've learned from that is we just don't want an echo chamber. We want people from different domains and different areas to come and bring their, their expertise in this field as well. So, uh, so yeah, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be November 11th through the 13th and you can sign up on my website. Amazing. All right, Lauren, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and actually a big shout out to Chris Williamson, the host of the Modern Wisdom podcast, who um, folks, our listeners may recognize. He connected us. He uh, interviewed you for his podcast and immediately sent me a message and said, you guys have to talk to Lauren. And he was right, unsurprisingly. So thank you to him. Thank you to you, Lauren. Thank you to everybody out there listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. And Ben and I will be back for another episode of Chasing Excellence next week. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.